and welcome to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick Podcast. I'm your host, Nina Spears, the Baby Chick, and today I'm with Dr. Amy Ketchum, a pediatric occupational therapist and owner of Amy's Babies, a child development company. Dr. Ketchum is the creator of STEM Starts Now, a digital subscription program for parents of young children to help with early child development and kindergarten readiness. Dr. Ketchum currently practices in a neonatal intensive care unit at UPMC Hospital in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, and has also spent several years working in early intervention and with young school-aged children in the school setting. So she has a unique perspective on how early development ties into kindergarten readiness skills. She believes that early science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM learning, and language skills start with babies, and parents can nurture these skills from the day babies are born. This is why Dr. Ketchum is the perfect person to chat with about STEM learning with babies and how STEM learning actually starts at birth. Hi, Dr. Ketchum. Thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast to chat about STEM learning. Hi, Nina. How are you? I'm doing great. How's it going? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Well, we have loved all of your content that you share on our site. So I just thought it would be perfect to be able to chat with you on our podcast to learn even more. I feel like, you know, as a mother to a toddler, I know that STEM learning is super important, but I'm really excited to learn more about why it's so essential, especially early on. So I'd love to just jump right into this and have you tell us more about why early STEM is important. Sure. So as a pediatric occupational therapist, I get the advantage of really working with very, very young children, even in the NICU, even preterm babies that are two, three pounds. And I see them already observing the world and taking in information from the world and really learning and exploring while they're just still so tiny. A couple things that I always want parents to understand is that when babies are born, they have all of the brain cells in place or neurons, but there's very few connections between those cells. So those synaptic connections happen at such a fast rate over the first year that if a baby gets enough stimulation, their brain will actually double in weight in one year and triple by age three just because of those new connections between those brain cells in the brain. And we know from magnetic resonance imaging that if babies do not get that stimulation, we don't see that increase in white matter in their brain. And you can actually see the difference in the MRIs between babies who get a lot of stimulation and those who don't. So we know that it's so important because those Connections are happening at a rate of 1 million per second if they're getting the right stimulation. That's amazing. Yeah, it's such a fascinating fact about early child development. And we also know that 90% of a child's brain is formed before they even start kindergarten. So it's a really critical time for building the, the foundation for all new learning. Wow. Yeah. So that really explains like why we need to nurture these skills early on. So can you explain, well, I guess you just said, you know, that STEM learning starts at birth and how their brain can triple in weight, gosh, so quickly if they actually are exposed to those things. So how do parents help their babies participate in STEM 
early learning and why should we do that? Yeah, so that's a great question. The thing about STEM, when we talk about science, technology, engineering, and math, is that it's really just fostering that early sense of wonder and imagination and creativity that young children have. And I'm sure you know, as a mom of a toddler, they're just very inquisitive, lots of questions, really, really wanting to learn about their world. Yes, they are. Yeah, so they're taking in all the information around the world through all their senses, what they see, what they hear, what they taste, their smell, what they feel on their body, the movements on their body, what things feel like moving against gravity. And they're sort of taking in all that information and processing it. We call that sensory processing or sensory integration. And they're sort of pulling all that information together to make sense of the world. And what we want to do with young children is really foster that sense of wonder. Because recently studies have shown that if we don't nurture that sense of curiosity early on, a child's interest in STEM can be completely gone by third grade if it's not fostered. So here we are as a society putting so much emphasis and even money into STEM learning at the secondary level, in high school, middle school, college level, but we're oftentimes really missing that newborn to age five piece when the foundation for all their future learning is forming. So we really want to look at how we can nurture that early sense of curiosity. And some of the things that, you know, we want to think about is what does the child's world look like? What are they getting out of their world? What does their information that's coming in look like? And how can we keep it engaging and interesting and, you know, stuff that they always want to be exploring. So we really need to sort of break that down and look at all the information they're taking in through all their senses, whether it's a newborn baby or a four-year-old, what are they seeing visually? When babies are born, their vision is not very well developed, but it continues to develop until well after their fifth birthday. So anything we're doing to give them visual stimulation is helping those brain cells to form and connect. So from the newborn baby that can really best see in shades of gray and black and white, and then eventually as the rods and cones in their eyes start to elongate, they start to perceive the color red. We want to think about giving them opportunities to look at those colors. Things like a playing card is the greatest visually stimulating activity for a newborn baby because it's black and white and red, and it has the contrasting colors. So holding that in front of the baby's face, getting them to focus and scan side to side helps to build the visual acuity, as well as the tiny little muscles around their eyes. So just by doing these little exercises, we're giving them experiences where they're learning about their world and building the foundation for future learning. And as they get older, vision, for example, we know that right around between three and six months, their depth perception really begins to form. So we want to give them lots of opportunity to practice that. We want to get them outside, looking out windows, definitely, you know, going to parks and places where they can perceive the different depths on the horizon and really practice that sense of depth perception. So it's really a combination of having some awareness of early child development and what's developing when and how we can really foster those skills at those critical moments that are going to really help with the development to lay the groundwork for kindergarten readiness and all of the skills that come later on. And another really big and important part of that is communication early on. And 
just building that back and forth conversational piece, we now know from some really amazing recent research that the best predictor of future academic skills is the child's language ability at 18 months. So children that are more interactive and saying more words and starting to put two words together and have that back and forth exchange with parents and caregivers are the children that typically do better on literacy and academic tests in third grade. So it's a really important predictor of their future academic skills, which really plays into that STEM learning as well. So I would say that's another really critical piece is the interactions we have with young children, that not only that we're giving them language and speaking to them, but that we're engaging in that back and forth communication so that they get that sort of, they call it serve and returns, where we, you know, sort of go back and forth. And we know that that's so critical for building those early brain connections, laying the foundation for future STEM activities. That's really helpful information. I was going to say with that, what you just said. So I have a two-year-old who is still having a hard time putting two words together. And for the parents out there that are listening, that are like, oh my gosh, my kid is not even close to doing that. You know, you're not alone. It does, you know, but I do want to ask you, Dr. Ketchum, then what are some things that parents can do to help encourage them to reach those milestones? Because you're saying, you know, at that 18 month mark or at the two year mark, I believe that some doctors believe that children need to be saying 50 words at that point, and that is not achievable for some children. But what are some things that parents can do so they can feel a little bit more like they're participating and trying to help their children reach those milestones? Well, first of all, let me put your mind at ease. All early child development is so highly variable. I never like to look at those charts that say children should be doing this or they should be doing that. Really, the fact that it is highly variable is one thing to consider, but also just to know speech is probably the most highly variable part of early child development. So just for example, it's completely within the normal range for a two-year-old to say 40 words or 400 words. So there's a huge span there of what we can expect within typical development. So try not to worry or compare your child to other children that are around the same age or look at those you know, milestone charts and put too much stock in that because every child is different. They're going to develop at their own different rate. And the things I sort of tell parents just to be aware of is we just want to see many milestones every so often. That doesn't mean something huge like, oh, they took their first step or they rolled over. It means we want to see a couple of weeks ago they were saying, buh, buh, and now they're trying to say ball. They're putting the rest of the word together. So we're getting just these mini milestones from time to time. So really, we just want to see that the child isn't in any way regressing, like they had certain skills, but now they've lost those skills. Obviously, we don't want to see that. We don't want to see a really long plateau where they would go for several weeks or a month without making any mini milestones. So what would happen if someone did see some type of regression or that long plateau? What, what would they do? What should they do? So if we would say something like that, there's a couple things to consider. Children tend to develop their milestones in spurts, and they tend to sort of focus on one skill while another one might, they might sort of forget another skill. So 
sometimes children will have a big spurt in their physical development where they're suddenly realizing they can run and climb. And so during that time of big physical exploration, they may not have as much language development because they're really focusing on refining those physical skills. So once they get comfortable with running and climbing and jumping, then you might see a spurt in their language development. So it can really kind of depend on what they're sort of focused on at the time. So if you see like, well, he used to say mama more often, but he doesn't seem to be saying it quite so much. Look at the whole picture. Is he really focused on the physical part? Is he really focused on more of the fine motor? Has he learned how to take toys apart with his fingertips or started to use a crayon on paper? And he's very focused on that right now. If you're starting to see some sort of regression across the board where all of his skills seem to be not progressing forward or, or moving backwards, then you just want to check with your child's healthcare provider and just make them aware of what you're seeing. And then, you know, they'll sort of take it from there and decide if further intervention is necessary or not. It might be just a speech evaluation or an occupational therapy evaluation just to give you some peace of mind that your child's on track. But usually we just want to see these mini milestones sort of sprinkled throughout and they're, they're usually on track. The other thing I always like to make sure we, we are aware of is that children don't skip their milestones either because all milestones build on previous milestones. So what is a common one that someone may see being skipped that they should try to look for? Sure. I'm so glad you asked that because the most common skipped milestone is crawling. And especially since the back to sleep initiative, which is, which is so important, we want babies to always sleep on their back. But I think babies aren't getting as much tummy time during their awake alert playtime. So they're not maybe building that core strength to prepare for crawling. And they might go straight to walking. They'll be on the floor and realize they can roll over to the furniture and get themselves up to standing and start cruising on the furniture without spending a whole lot of time crawling on the floor. And that would be a skipped milestone that we would want to see children spend some time in because crawling is a very foundational milestone in that while children are crawling, they're building a lot of core strength. They're building strength through their neck muscles, their abdominal muscles and their back muscles and their shoulder and hip girdle, which is really important for lots of gross motor activities later on for stability and strength because children develop from their head to their toes and from their trunk outward. So when you think about, you know, first they get control over their head and are able to hold their head up and then eventually they can sit up and then crawl. So, so they're really developing head down. And without that crawling milestone, I, I sort of think of it as like planking for adults, how it strengthens our core. When babies are crawling, it really helps to strengthen their shoulder and hip girdle and their core, which because they're developing head to toe and trunk out, if they don't have good stability at their shoulders and hips, it's hard to have good stability with the fine motor skills, with holding a pencil and crayons and cutting with scissors and those types of things. So there are a lot of kids that skip the crawling milestone and they're just fine. But sometimes when I see a child for occupational therapy in a school-age child with poor handwriting or difficulty with two-handed activities or cutting skills, we go back and find out they either didn't crawl or they didn't spend a lot of time crawling. And we have to go back and strengthen those core muscles. 
So that's just one example of why we don't want to skip any milestones. And I, my second daughter wanted to cruise on furniture. She was one who wanted to skip the crawling milestone. And I was constantly pulling her away from furniture and putting her back on her hands and knees in the middle of the floor and trying to encourage her to crawl. Well, that's helpful to know that, you know, even your child (laughs) can sometimes want to skip those milestones, but to keep reinforcing, okay, if crawling is a big one, picking them up, putting them back in the center of the room away from anything that they can prop themselves up and cruise along to encourage that crawling skill. Exactly. Because a lot of that early STEM happens during crawling too, because their world is so close to them down on the floor. All their toys are there. There's a lot to explore. There's a lot of sensations to feel against a large part of their skin. Skin is the largest organ on our bodies, so it has a large representation in our brain. So allowing children to crawl through grass or sand or, you know, different textures on their skin is a great early STEM activity because it's a great way to explore and take in information and the little thoughts about the world that they're a part of. Super helpful. I mean, I know that you said that crawling is the the most common milestone that's skipped. Is there another one that we should should look for maybe at an older age? So as an occupational therapist, I'm pretty focused on more of the fine motor things, what children are doing with their hands. And so sometimes I'll see that parents, very, very well-meaning parents, might help a lot with self-feeding or things like that. And they maybe don't develop all of the fine motor dexterity that they can early on by picking up Cheerios or squishing a banana or an avocado between their fingers and really getting the the different tactile sensations and the sensory stimulation. And so when children are developing those fine motor skills, we want them to have lots of opportunities to touch different textures and play in different textures so that they get that dexterity so that they can have those skills later on when they're starting to learn handwriting and different activities of like using scissors or stringing beads on a string so they can use both hands together and have that dexterity and strength with finger isolation and all that sort of stuff. These would be mini milestones that we look for that that are built very early on by having those opportunities to explore. Very cool. This is so this is so fascinating to me. And I feel like STEM learning has been kind of like the new hot topic where preschools are saying, oh, well, we have, you know, the STEM learning room (laughs) where they focus on, on those kind of things. So can you tell me a little bit like how that got started and, you know, the science, technology, engineering, and math, and sometimes I'll even hear STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. So can you tell me a little bit on like Or tell me a little bit about how that got started and now why it's an actual thing and why, I mean, it's even led you to start, you know, you're the creator of STEM Starts Now. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So it got started because there's definitely a need in our evolving world for careers that focus in STEM. It's sort of the fastest growing industry, careers out there that are very heavy in in the sciences and the math. And so it sort of has started at the top and worked its way down. So it really started at the college level where there was a lot more emphasis on on STEM classes so that people would be more ready for the workforce. And then I think it sort of moved down to the high school level where there's more emphasis on the sciences and math so that when 
kids go to college, they have those skills or when they go into, you know, job placement or different sort of training types of training activities. Right. Internships. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it sort of has trickled down from there and I'm kind of at the bottom trying to pull it down to the the preschool level because this is where we know the foundation for all learning occurs. And we know that this is the one time in our life where, where children are most inquisitive. So we really want to capitalize on that time within that, that early learning period. So I've been seeing a really cool thing happen where the emphasis of STEM is definitely moving down. A lot of elementary schools offer STEM as one of their specials now, which I think is fabulous. And some schools call it STEM and keep it very focused on the science piece. And some call it STEAM and do add that art piece in there. I chose to keep it STEM for STEM Starts Now because there's tons of emphasis on art. Art is a special already in the school. And I just wanted to make that delineation a little bit that we're really focusing on the science and discovery. Now, because we're working with young children, a lot of means of doing that is through art. We do a lot with music and art. We have over a hundred little printable activities. And I'd say 90% of them have some sort of art or music component because that's how children learn. So it's really just built in there. But, you know, my focus on bringing it to the younger population is providing the kids with the foundation they need for learning when they get to school. And I really want to stress That by that, I don't mean giving the child technology. That does not mean giving them a phone or an iPad or a tablet or anything like that. It really means helping the child to explore their world and become their own little scientist and engineer. And engineering is, you know, assembling blocks, building a tower as high as we can, you know, taking a toothbrush and coming up with three other uses for it, building on that sense of creativity and making our own tools and more, a lot more emphasis on instead of just reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, the four C's creativity and collaboration and critical thinking and all that really good stuff that that is so important for learning. And the other really important piece of early STEM is providing children with the right language and terminology. So I've worked with so many kindergartners who start school not knowing directionality words or spatial skill words. So when we say, today we're going to draw the letter T, put your pencil at the top of your paper, they don't have a sense of top versus bottom or left versus right or high and low. And these are all words that we incorporate into all the little lessons we do in the STEM Starts Now program so that we're teaching children the terminology that's, again, going to lay the groundwork for future education skills. So do you see, do you believe that like most children entering kindergarten with the skill, with the skills necessary to learn, are they? So nationally, 60% of children enter kindergarten without the skills necessary to learn. Wow. 60%. Yes. It's a daunting, it's a daunting number. And in a lot of, how do they come up with that number? The NAEYC has done studies and they've compiled data and they've come up with that number. And recently I was at a in-service in Chicago and some of the more urban areas are as high as 78% of children are not passing the kindergarten assessments. So what are they looking for in those assessments? 
So the kindergarten readiness skills consist of several different areas, the more heavily academic areas, the motor skills, self-care skills. A big piece right now that we're, that we're really looking at is the social emotional development and also language and communication. So I can break that all down a little bit more for you. Basically, what we're looking for with the physical development is that they can hold a pencil and write their name, that they can stand on one foot, that they can walk up and down steps without having to hold on to a railing, that they can kick a ball, that they can catch a ball, they can throw underhand and overhand, all those specific motor skills. The intellectual skills, we want to see some of those higher level executive skills, like the working memory stuff. We want to see children be able to know their own address, their parents' phone numbers, so a lot of that really functional kinds of stuff. And that sort of plays into a lot of social-emotional stuff, that they would have self-control, the ability to stand in a line with other children, the ability to sit on a carpet square you know, without being disruptive to other children around them, the ability to follow a schedule. There's a lot of self-control that you know they're looking for. Also, the ability to sort of raise their hand and ask for help to advocate for themselves. So it's a lot of sort of, they call them more like the soft skills that they just, you know, kind of learn through experiences that are not necessarily very black and white. It's not so much just do they come in knowing their colors and numbers one to 10. It's more of the social and emotional piece that is really critical because they need to have those skills in place to be able to sit and attend and learn and have the attention span and take in information. And when we spend so much time with young children having screen time, they don't develop those critical skills of the interpersonal skills, the language and communication with other people, the ability to take turns. You know, I watch children play video games and when they start to lose, they just click off the game and click on another game. It's not like playing a board game where there's the back and forth and you consider the other person's thoughts and emotions and you have to wait your turn and you're developing self-control. And, you know, sure, they're learning some motor skills of how to manipulate a screen, but are they learning all those bigger soft skills that are so important for sitting in a classroom with 22 other children? That makes total sense. Absolutely. Okay. Well, so what can we do as parents to help our children with kindergarten readiness? So I'm so glad you asked that. The most important thing is just to be aware that it starts early. So many parents, I feel like they take their child to sign up for kindergarten four or six months before kindergarten starts. And they get that list from the school that says your child needs to do this and this and this and this. And that's when they sort of start thinking about kindergarten readiness. They say, okay, we need to learn to write your name. Well, a year ago, did they learn how to hold a crayon? A year before that, did they learn how to pick up a ball and release it and throw it? So all the skills build on previous skills. So kindergarten readiness does not start six months before the child goes to kindergarten. It starts at birth. So parents need to educate themselves on what does typical early child development look like and what skills should children be attaining so that they can build on those skills. 
I'm such a such a proponent of, of just education, parents educating themselves. And that's really the foundation of the STEM Starts Now program is to provide that early development education piece. And then we sort of mesh that into kindergarten readiness. So we're taking kind of the medical model of the early child development and kind of morphing it into the academic model of of the actual academic skills that are necessary. Because like I said, you know, when you look at the developmental skills of crawling or the eye development, how that plays into education later on, how that's going to, you know, going to play into the academic skills. So, you know, the other thing I always want to say about that, for example, the incidence of autism is so prevalent right now. And autism is not diagnosed by the presence of some atypical behavior. Usually it's diagnosed by the absence of typical behavior and development. So just another reason why parents need to really take that responsibility to educate themselves on what does typical development look like and have some sense that their child is moving on track because if they start to see things that are missing, it's really important that they point that out to their child's healthcare provider and get that early intervention as soon as possible for the best outcome. So we really tried to build all that into, into the program and, and just really making parents aware that it starts very early and giving children tons of experiences is really the most critical piece. And to really sort of supplement those experiences with the back and forth conversational interactions and giving children opportunities to explore and, and really you know converse about what they're seeing and exploring. I love that. That is super helpful. Gosh, I'm taking notes as as I hope all of our listeners are too. And so like you just said, you were saying the communication back and forth. So how does that language affect kindergarten readiness and academics later on? So we now know that the actual back and forth reactions activate certain parts of the brain that are really important for learning later on. I don't know how technical you want me to get, but there's there's basically a part of the brain called the Broca's area and another part of the brain, Wernicke's area. And, and one is responsible for sort of receptive language, like taking in language and understanding it. And then the other part is more responsible for the output of language, like whether it's nonverbal communication or verbal communication. And we know that when we interact with our children, even before they're able to talk, when we just allow our child to babble back and forth with us, we're strengthening not only those two parts of the brain, but the matter between those two parts of the brain. We're building those connections and that enables basically stronger skills later on for literacy math, higher level reasoning skills, all that good executive function stuff that's so critical. That's more of that higher level stuff where they can sort of exhibit self-control and be able to take turns and raise their hand and have that attention span. So that's, that's part of what plays into that. And those back and forth communication pieces start so early. I put a book at every bedside in the NICU where I work and encourage parents to read to their babies, even if they're just two pounds, because studies show that babies 
recognize mommy's voice the day they're born. So they do hear it in utero. It's actually amplified through their body. So they show familiarity to it and they're calmed by it on the very day that they're born. So we need to capitalize on that to build those connections and build that bonding and attachment. We also know that research has shown us that babies are starting to understand the pause and flow of conversation as early as three weeks. Oh, wow. So they watch. Isn't that fascinating? That's crazy. Yeah, amazing. So, yeah. So they watch babies' eye gaze, and they can see that when two people are talking, when the first person pauses, the baby's eyes will gaze over to the second person, anticipating that it's their turn to talk. So even before a baby understands their own language, they're starting to understand communication. They're understanding the pause and flow of a conversation. So I'm sure you've seen or you've experienced with your own child, and there's those adorable videos on YouTube all the time of like a caregiver or parent talking to a baby who doesn't have language yet, and the baby will just babble back. And there'll just be this back and forth conversation between, you know, an adult and a baby that's adorable, but we're, we're building the foundation for that baby's language and communication abilities. So it starts so, so, so early. And I just love that we now know that a child's ability to communicate at 18 months is the strongest predictor of their academic skills in third grade. And quick shout out to dads. <laughs> we also know from research that a child's engagement with daddy at 18 months is an even stronger predictor of their future language and literacy abilities. So it's so important for dads to read to their babies, sing to their babies, talk to their babies, interact all day long because babies are find daddies very engaging, I guess. And they really are always the fun parent, I swear. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Mommy has to lay down the law and cook dinner and whatever. But yeah, daddy is Mr. Mr. Fun Time. <laughs> Mr. Fun Time. Exactly. I know. But yeah, we don't want to discount daddies because it's such a critical piece. And it's so fascinating to know that they play this important role that with this, you know, future predictor. And the other thing I find really, really fascinating, Patricia Cool is a big researcher in this sort of in this arena with early language acquisition. And she calls all babies citizens of the world, because she has found through her research that babies up to age six months are able to interpret every single sound from every language spoken in the world. So it's not till after six months when they babies really start to hone in on their own language that they sort of lose that ability to distinguish all sounds from every language spoken in the world and really start to focus in on their own language. There was a really fascinating study that she did where she took babies and had them have Mandarin lessons. They were English speaking babies, but they were about, I think, four to six months. And they had a Mandarin woman do 20 minute lessons with them. I think just five or six little lessons where she would do puppet shows and sing and talk to them in Mandarin. And those babies that had those little Mandarin lessons after those six lessons were able to identify as many Mandarin sounds as Mandarin speaking babies. So it just shows how quickly babies' brains are primed for language and communication at that age. And the second part of that study that I also find fascinating is they replicated the same exact little lessons, only they put babies in front of screens this time. And they had the babies just watch the woman speak to them in Mandarin and do the same puppet plays and all that 
on a screen. And guess how much new Mandarin sounds those babies learned? I don't know. How many? None. Really? Absolutely zero. So not only did babies need a ton of interaction, but it has to be human. It has to be face-to-face human interactive experiences. That's why the American Academy of Pediatrics is so strict with screen time recommendations. Zero screen time is recommended before the age of two. And that's because they don't want that to take the place of human interactions. It's just such a critical piece. And and we now know the most latest study just out a week or two ago, they actually found changes in young children's brain when they spend greater than recommended amount of time watching screens, they found actual changes in their white matter. So this is the first time we're actually seeing that the detriment to screen time is, is not just the absence of human interaction, but that it can actually change the developing brain, the structure of the brain. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on that information because I would have so many questions because you know there are so many parents that you just, to be able to, especially if you have more than one child, you have like a new baby and a toddler and you just want like 15 minutes to just take a nap. <laughs> You're like, watch a movie. And you, you know, you do what you got to do to survive in those moments. Uh, yeah. Trying to figure out ways to substitute that is important. But again, that could be a whole other podcast. I actually do have one question for you, Dr. Ketchum. Okay. So you were a little while back talking about the different parts of the brain when it comes to language and how one part of the brain really takes in that language and understands it. And another part of the brain is really more of the output of language. So what if you recognize one side being stronger than the other? So they are taking in that language, they're understanding it fully, but they are just not engaging with that other part of the brain as much and not using their words to be able to communicate. Maybe they're doing a little bit of sign language or just grunting and pointing. What would you say in that kind of instance? And what can parents do if you kind of see one part of the brain becoming stronger than the other? And how can we even that out? So Wernicke's area is stronger in the comprehension of spoken language. And Broca's area is more with the speech part. And it's perfectly typical development for children to be stronger in the receptive part before they can actually speak and communicate themselves. So typically, and this is children will understand a lot more than you think and are understanding much more than they're able to express themselves. And that's typical early child development and that's what's expected. So don't worry, you know, if you're seeing that, if you're seeing that children, you know, when you say, do you want a cracker or a pretzel? And they're able to point or they're able to, you know, comprehend what you're saying, but they're not able to say, hey, mom, I'd rather have a cracker <laughs> because that develops later on. So that's very, that's very typical. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes complete sense because, I mean, just like adults, sometimes if you hear Spanish, you can understand what the other person is saying, but to be able to take in that language and speak it yourself to that other person takes a lot more effort. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah, a different part of the brain. So that makes complete sense. I guess I'm just wondering, I, I've seen it in a lot of children where they do understand, but they're they're struggling to get those words out. So are, are there things that parents can do to help strengthen that other part of the brain? 
Yeah. So there's a lot of things we can do just by continuing to talk to children, giving them opportunities to talk back, just talking all day long, narrating what we're doing as we're doing things. And I know we all live in this digital world. We're on our phones, but try to maybe, you know, while you're reading your email or your text, read it out loud and make eye contact with your child every so often. You're just, you're giving them more language. So, so that's the first thing is you want to give them as much language as you can. And then for what you expect back from them, make sure it's on their level. If they're not making sounds yet, don't get frustrated that they can't say, I want my cup. You have to take a big step back and say, this is a ball, buh, buh. Can you say buh for ball? You know, you have to really start with very, very basic and work up from there. Give the child lots of opportunities to try. And I think a lot of times we do, we just sort of instinctively as parents just do for our children without giving them the opportunity to ask. Mm -hmm. Yes, I see that a lot. Yeah. And what I tell parents a lot is, you know, they'll say, well, you know, he doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't. And I'll say, do you give him the opportunity to ask? So, you know, think about it mealtimes or playtime or whatever. If there's a toy out of reach and you, you follow their eye gaze or you see them point and you know they want it, so you instinctively grab it and give it to them, maybe wait a couple seconds and make them ask for it. You know, when they, maybe during mealtime, you put their cup out of reach or you put, you know, their spoon out of reach and say, what do you need? And, you know, really make them make the attempt to say the word. And I'm not saying build frustration in your child, but, you know, give them a prompt. Like, do you want your cup? And just let them say, and then quick, give them the cup. Like you want to make them make some sort of effort. And then every day you build on that. Do you need your spoon? Can you say spoon? Can you say s? And just get that out of them. So you're just, you know, you're taking these little incremental opportunities to build language. And that's, that's really what it is. It's, building language and it's it's taking every opportunity you can to encourage them even if it's just sounds of words that they're starting that articulation and you know if if they can't if they're not there yet then try to get nonverbal communication out of them teach them some sign language baby sign language is phenomenal it's a great way for babies to interact and to communicate or you know teach just teach them to point somehow teach them to advocate for themselves so that they're building that communicative part of their brain. This was so helpful. Dr. Ketchum, is there anything like a piece of advice or recommendation or anything at all that you want to leave our listeners with? (laughs) I guess I would just reiterate parenting is hard and and it takes a lot of help. You know, rely on your friends, rely on your family. Of course, we need breaks. You mentioned that with, you know, that you need a break and you want to just put them in front of a screen for 20 minutes. Don't be hard on yourselves if that's part of what, you know, gets you through the day. And that's, you know, a really important piece. And just, you know, to be aware that that communication is really important and that that learning starts early. I think, you know, there's a misconception that, Children don't always understand until they're able to speak back to us. And, you know, we now know that they're taking it in so early. They're comprehending much more than we think really early. And because all those skills build on previous skills, it's never too early to start giving your child tons of experiences. 
It's amazing. This was super helpful. Thank you again, Dr. Ketchum, for chatting with me about this major topic and why parents need to be more mindful of STEM learning. So thank you again. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. All right, everyone. Thank you guys for tuning in to today's episode. We now want you to join us in the STEM conversation on our Baby Chick Facebook page, where we'll be posting this episode and answering questions in the comments. We want to hear your experiences and your thoughts. We'll also post more information about Dr. Ketchum's STEM starts now. As always, subscribe to Chip Chat, the Baby Chick podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and of course, our website, www.baby-chick.com. Thank you.